1: Yes, indeed it is. Nine minutes after 10 o'clock, and hour number two is underway. It is a Monday, the 19th, morning of the seventh month of the year of our Lord, 2021. Appreciate, uh, Jim Jordan, a lot of very important stuff that we talked about there. I, um, you know, It's funny, I hear the Reagan intro again, and I get motivated, and I get inspired again. The Olympics start uh, at the end of this week, I think, right? Is this weekend like the opening ceremony or something like that? I mean, not that it matters. There's nobody there. No fans are going to be allowed in Tokyo. No family members to cheer on their American Olympic athletes as they fight to get the gold for the red, white, and blue. But I think it's starting this week. And because I thought of that, um, and then I heard President Reagan's inspirational words about heroes in America, it brought to mind, once again, the, 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 the plans of several on the left America-hating athletes wearing American colors who plan to desecrate the flag or who plan to, because literally one of them said they wanted to burn the flag while they were on the podium. Another turned their back on it while the anthem was playing. Another said they want to kneel or put their fists up to show how racist America is with the black power symbol. And it just, it depresses me. Uh, It saddens me. I've said it before, and I know I'm not alone, <clears throat> that I firmly believe that those who would those who would embarrass the red, white, and blue colors that they wear should not be allowed to go to Tokyo and represent the red, white, and blue. Quite frankly, I don't know how, why anybody would want to, right? I mean, we are talking quite literally about representing the united states this isn't representing the cleveland cavaliers in the nba this isn't representing your you know your pro football team this is representing your country against athletes from other countries you specifically are saying i'm sure sh- i'm fighting to show that my country is better right that the best my country has to offer is the, be- the is better than the best your country has to offer that's literally what it's all about and yet They want to wear those colors and then go up there and embarrass themselves and the country by saying, I don't believe we're better here. I don't believe our country is good. I think our country is oppressive. It's racist. It is systemically oppressive of of people of color or people in the LGBTQXYZ community or whatever it might be. And it just makes me very sad to think that our country could be represented by those who hate her. Yesterday, Trey Gowdy... Um, who used to be a congressman from South Carolina that a lot of us liked, very, very well-spoken, very well, very well and passionate <laughs> defender of Americana and of American exceptionalism. He was hosting on Fox News, and he gave what I felt like was just a tremendous monologue talking about the greatness of America that, this, that these Olympians do not want to recognize, that these America haters, both the Olympians and their apologists in the Democrat Party, let's make no bones about it, every one of those Olympians which has either already disparaged or desecrated the American flag, the American anthem, the American pledge, or whatever the case might be, every single one of them has legions of Democrats behind them in their corner and saying, yeah, because they hate this country. And as I've said many times on these airwaves, when a liberal Democrat tells you they hate the country, don't argue with them, believe them. It's when we declare them as an enemy of this country that we will be fully committed to defeating them. And defeating them means stopping Marxism, stopping socialism, stopping communism, defending capitalism, defending patriotism, defending liberty. Trey Gowdy with a monologue that I feel like needs to be heard particularly as we get ready for these Olympics to begin.
2: Good evening, and thank you for joining us. I'm Trey Gowdy, and welcome to Sunday Night in America. This past week, we've seen images from Haiti, Cuba, and Afghanistan. We've seen images of people in other countries carrying our flag, the American flag, as they fight to secure their own fundamental freedoms. And then we see images from our own country of that same flag being burned or shunned, We hear countries calling for the United States to send our police, our investigators, our soldiers to help them, even as there are calls in this country by our own politicians to eliminate, defund, or denigrate those same institutions. We're asked to keep the peace in parts of the world some of us can't even find on a map, even as some American cities struggle to keep the peace on their very own streets. It's a compliment on the one hand when others look to our country as an ideal, as the keeper of the peace, as the model for freedom and liberation, but with those expectations comes the pressure to live up to those expectations, to be worthy of those expectations. America is one of those rare countries where you are free to even burn your own flag. You are free to turn your back on your own flag, even as you are vying to compete on the world stage under that very same flag. America is a country where you are not only free to call for the police and the military to be defunded, but you will actually be protected by both the police and the military while you call for them to be defunded. America is one of those rare experiments in freedom where you can criticize the very country which gave you the freedom to criticize it in the first place. Many of you have traveled abroad. I've been to Africa and Europe. I've been to the Middle East and South America and Central America. When you travel, you sometimes see things differently. You, you gain a new perspective. You experience the beauty of other countries and their cultures. You experience the almost universal kindness people give you. You have a sense of history. You have this dual sense of both how small you are and how interconnected the world is. But most of all, when you travel, you grow to appreciate America even more. There are people who risk their lives to come here. There are people who would give everything they have, everything they own to live in this country. There are people who would say goodbye to their own children or their own parents to live in America. We won the lottery by being here. When I was 20 years old, traveling through Kenya and Tanzania, it was readily apparent to me that I was no different, no more worthy, no more entitled to get on a plane and come back here than any of the other 20 year old faces I was passing. I was just lucky. I won the lottery of birth do we have challenges in our country of course we do but I'd rather have our challenges than anyone else's I'd rather have our flaws our potential for betterment than anyone else's when I see people in other countries carrying our flag as an inspiration for their own freedom. When I hear other countries asking for our help to stabilize their country, or their military, or their government. When I recall the images of people in makeshift rafts risking their lives to get here, or mothers trying to pass their children to Americans to give them a chance at a better life. Even if it means never seeing those children again. It makes me grateful for the gift of being able to call this country home. So yes, if you're an American, you're free to turn your back on the flag. You're free to burn it. You're free to walk on it. You're free to disrespect it and then wear it on your uniform in a sporting event. You're free to call for the police to be defunded, even as the police protect you and your home and your place of business. You're free to call for the military to be defunded, even as the military serves and sacrifices and sometimes dies to defend your rights. You're free to do it. You're just wrong to do it. But if you persist and feel like that's really what you've been called to do, to constantly criticize this country. At least acknowledge how lucky you are to be here while you do it. And remember the images of those who would give everything they have to just be here.
1: That was not performance art. The breaking of his voice that you heard as he described the images of moms in rafts in open water passing their children to Americans in other rafts to take them to the United States, whether it be crossing a river or an ocean. When you heard his voice cracking, trembling a little bit, almost tearful, that wasn't performance art. He's not an actor. He felt it the same way that many of us feel it. Trey Gowdy described it as hitting the lottery. We hit the lottery by being born here. He's right. There's no other country on this planet in which you would be better off had you been born there. And yet, millions upon millions of ungrateful Americans who hit the American lottery, millions upon millions of American leftists, Democrats, treat this country as if they have been sentenced to a cell rather than hitting the lottery. And to those people who would burn that flag, kneel for that anthem, turn their back, shame and desecrate those colors, those who feel like they're trapped in a cell of oppression and racism, here's my offer to you. I'll give you the key. I'll give you the key to your cell. Feel free to unlock it And get the freaking hell out of it. Get out of this terrible cage that you see as America. You're free. I'll even buy you the one-way ticket to Cuba. Live under communism. Live under Marxism. I'll send you to wherever you want to go. You're not imprisoned here. You have freedom to leave. And I would suggest to you, rather than you try to tear down this country and turn it into a socialist, Marxist, communist hellhole, go live in one for a while. Then see if you still think that's a great idea. I'll be right back. It's always a beautiful day when you're in the greatest country in the world. It's just hard to convince very, very delusional people of that. BJ in North Olmsted, you're on AM 1420, the answer. Hi, BJ, go ahead.
3: Thank you, Bob. Before I make my political comment, I'd like to share with you that the Michael Eric film Connected was shown in LA, California at the Standalone Film Festival, and out of 81 countries competing, his was in one of the top four.
1: Wow this
3: feature on August twelfth and it's That's coming phenomenal. to Cleveland again. Anyway, politically speaking, if I may for a moment, one of the reasons our government is behaving the way it is is because the American public has been compliant with everything from wearing a mask and taking the shots. And when they see people that are being compliant, unlike the people are behaving in Cuba right now, they're going to take advantage of it. All the political talk and, and all the politicians that are talking about how wonderful and free we are to burn our flag and all that, it's falling on deaf ears. What has to take place is the public has to start to show, like they did uh, under the Trump administration when they marched on the Capitol, they've had enough of their crap. I mean, this has gone too far in America, and people if the pe- American public does not wake up and stand up against this government and its behavior, it's all over. If we're going to be compliant, they're going to take us over and take our voice away and tell us what to do. And if people do it, you're going to get what you expect. And I hate to see it happen in this country. And I appreciate your your enthusiasm for the freedom of this country and uh, the two two gentlemen that spoke, congressmen, senators. But we need more than voice. We need action. And people have to start showing themselves up physically in front of capitals, city halls, uh, at the state representative. We have enough of these tyrannical politicians telling the American public what they have to do in a free country. I thank you for listening, and thank you for your time, Bob.
1: Yes, sir, BJ, as always. Thank you for the call. Um, look, what we have to do, my friend, is vote. Now, this isn't going to be a dismissive, oh, we just need to vote, and we'll, we'll change. I want you to listen and I want everyone, everybody to understand this, the left is terrified, terrified, of the fact that come 2022, now we have a lot, of, you know, a lot of time between now and then, they could do a lot of damage if we're not careful, so I think BJ's right. We need to be heard in our state capitals. We need to be heard in our state legislatures. We need to be heard in Washington, D.C. We absolutely need to continue to be loud and be aggressive, not, not violent, not illegal, nothing like what happened on January 6th where they breached the Capitol. Just go all the way up to that point. Be loud. What did President Trump say? Be uh, 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 patriotic and peaceful in going down there to make your voices heard loudly. That was, the, that was the idea. But then we need to vote. And my friends, listen to me. They're desperate. They're terrified. Look at the state of Texas. If you're not following this, Governor Greg Abbott has called a special session of the Texas state legislature to vote on a number of pieces of legislation, one of which is their new voter integrity act, voter integrity law, or piece of legislation until it becomes law. And all it does is it strengthens Texas's ability to make sure that it is easier for people to vote, but harder for people to cheat. They would become the 12th Republican, or excuse me, the 12th state led by Republican efforts to just make sure that everybody gets one vote, but only one vote not multiple votes, and everybody must prove who they say they are when they cast their vote so that they're not voting for dead people. Greg Abbott made that very, very clear. And the Democrats know full well they don't have the votes to stop it, so they left. They're in D.C. You know the drill. You know the story. It's been going on for a week. They left with a case of Miller Lite aboard an airplane, and then they picked up five cases of Corona along the way. Not beer. Corona as in Virus. Five of them have coronavirus, which is just kind of like fitting for this story. But the point is they're terrified to come back because as soon as they do, they're going to be forced into session, they're going to cast their votes, and they're going to lose, and Texas is going to be a much more secure place to hold elections, along with 11 other states that have passed similar election-strengthening laws. They're not voter suppression. They're not disenfranchisement. They're not violations of the Voter Rights Act. None of them. All they are is to make sure that the new COVID-led voting scams that were put in place last year, because of COVID, we couldn't stand in line to vote, so we had drop boxes all over the place that were completely corrupted. We had all kinds of ballot harvesting done. They stopped looking at post, post uh, postmarks on when ballots were supposed to be in and when they were in, but actually in by. They didn't do signature verification. No ID I mean, all of this crap that they allowed to go through in order to steal the election from Donald Trump, states are simply putting a cap on that stuff and saying we're going to have one vote for every person and that's it. That will be enough for us to take back everything, the House and the Senate. Now, do we need to make sure that our current legislators, led by Democrats in both houses, do we need to make sure that they, you know, we stop um, you know, the worst damage that they can do for the next, what is it going to be, what's my math here, 12 and, and uh, about 15 months, right? Do we still have a lot of work to do? Yeah, BJ's right. we got to be loud. we got to be heard. But no, that change is coming. Historically and traditionally, the party that is in power loses a plethora of seats at the midterm election, the first uh, midterm election of a new term, of a new president. So historically speaking, the Republicans are going to take the, the House back and the Senate. But when you add to it, what we're talking about right now, I think, it's going to be a, I think it's going to be a blowout. I think it's going to be a massive red wave. We just have to tread water until it's time to ride that red wave in November of 2022. We'll take a time out here and come right back.
4: Sides to every story. There's the mainstream media side, and then there's the truth. You are
1: experiencing the truth. The Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Okay, it's ten thirty-six. Um, I'm I'm gonna pull an audible here. <laughs> I uh, I wasn't planning on doing this. I listened, while I was doing a cardio walk over the weekend, I listened to a 16-and-a-half, 17-minute presentation by Chris Rufo of the National Journal um, about critical race theory. It was the, hands-down, the best explanation of what critical race theory is, what its origins are, what they are intending to do with it in the United States of America, and how and why we must push back with it or against it with every fiber of our being. Hands down the best explanation of CRT. Anytime you hear me talk about critical race theory, you hear Tucker, hear anybody else talking about critical race theory, and you're saying, I don't quite get what it is, now you'll get what it is. I don't normally play things this long form on the radio, but I feel like this is an extraordinarily important thing to do and a very valuable and, I think, wise expense of our time. Please listen to the entire 16 and a half minutes you're about to hear.
4: Critical race theory is everywhere. It's rapidly becoming the new orthodoxy in America's public institutions, and yet most Americans have no idea where it comes from and what kind of society it envisions. In this video, I'll walk through the history of critical race theory, explain why it's a threat to the country, and most importantly, show you how you can fight it. Let's start at the beginning, with a short history of Marxism. Traditionally, the Marxist left has built its political program on the theory of class conflict. Marx believed that the primary mechanism of power in society was the relationship between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. The solution to this conflict, according to Marx, was revolution. He believed the proletariat would eventually gain consciousness of its plight, seize the means of production, and usher in a new socialist society. Over the course of the 20th century, a number of regimes attempted Marxist revolution, and all of them ended in disaster. The socialist countries racked up a body count of nearly 100 million people sent to the gulags, murdered in the streets or starved to death due to the failure of socialist agricultural policy. Marx envisioned the new man who would transcend the limitations of the industrial world. But in practice, his ideas unleashed man's oldest and darkest brutalities. By the mid-1960s, Marxist intellectuals in Europe and the United States had begun to understand these failures. They recoiled at the tyranny of the Soviet Union and came to realize that the call for the proletarian revolution would never work in the industrial nations of the West, which had large middle classes and a rapidly growing standard of living. Most Americans believed they could transcend their origins through education, hard work, and community support. But rather than abandon their political project, the Marxist scholars of the era, calling themselves critical theorists, simply updated their theory of the revolution. They set out in search of another entry point for their politics and found it in the social and racial unrest of the 1960s. Over the course of the decade, the critical theorists gradually abandoned the old economic dialectic of bourgeoisie and proletariat and replaced it with a new racial dialectic of white and black. This provided the ideological basis for the radical movements of the era, including the Communist Party USA, the Black Panthers, the Black Liberation Army, And the weather underground. The vision of the critical theorists and the racial revolutionaries, however, eventually lost out to the vision of the civil rights movement and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, which promised the fulfillment of the American ideal of equality under the law and to alleviate poverty through government action. The radicals sought to overthrow the American regime, but most Americans simply wanted to improve it. But this, too, was destined for disappointment on the left. In the following 30 years, the left became disillusioned with the idea of equality under the law and with the anti-poverty programs of the Great Society, which failed to reduce poverty and social pathologies despite trillions in public spending. For many of the intellectuals on the left, the entire project of colorblindness, meritocracy, private property and individual rights came to be seen as a failure. So they went back to the drawing board and increasingly sought to revive the most radical strands of Marxist thought from the previous generation. This is where critical race theory comes in. Critical race theory is an academic discipline that came to fruition in the 1990s, building on the intellectual framework of critical theory and identity politics. Sometimes it's directly labeled critical race theory. But it's usually deployed under a series of euphemisms, such as equity, social justice, diversity and inclusion, and culturally responsive teaching. This is deliberate. The critical race theorists are masters of language construction and realize that neo-Marxism would be a hard sell to the American public. But equity is soft, persuasive, non-threatening, and easily confused with the American principle of equality. But the distinction between these two words, equality and equity, is vast and crucially important. Equality is the idea that was first proclaimed in the Declaration of Independence, consecrated in blood during the Civil War, and codified into law with the 14th and 15th Amendments and the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of the mid-1960s. But the critical race theorists explicitly reject this vision, arguing that equality under the law is camouflage for white supremacy, patriarchy, and naked racial oppression. In their academic work they've directly attacked the principles of non-discrimination colorblindness individual rights private property school integration freedom of speech and meritocracy the critical race theorists would replace the system of equality with a system of equity which represent diametrically opposed philosophies whereas equality seeks to protect individual rights regardless of race equity seeks to divide the world into competing racial groups and ensure race-based equality of outcomes endorsing active racial discrimination to get there. In a foundational paper called Whiteness as Property, the critical race theorist Cheryl Harris has proposed suspending private property rights, seizing land and wealth from the rich and redistributing it along racial lines. The critical race guru, Ibram Kendi, has proposed the creation of a department of anti-racism with the power to nullify, veto or abolish any law at any level of government and silence the speech of political leaders and intellectuals who are not deemed anti-racist. The new department would be unaccountable to voters, the executive or the legislature. In other words, it would become an all-powerful fourth branch of government and mean the end of the federalist system. Finally, like the critical theorists before them, the critical race theorists would abolish the economic system of capitalism and replace it with an economic system of collectivism. According to Kendi, in order to truly be anti-racist, you also have to truly be anti-capitalist. Identity is the means, Marxism is the end, same as it ever was. So how does this ideology translate into real-world practice? For the first two decades, critical race theory remained an obscure field of inquiry, relegated to academic journals and university campuses. But today, critical race theory is quickly becoming the default ideology of our public institutions. It's spread from the universities to government agencies, public school systems, teacher training programs, and even corporate HR departments. It's been transformed from a series of academic concepts into diversity training programs, corporate compliance modules, public policy frameworks, and public school curricula. Last year, I conducted a series of reports focused on agencies of the federal government. I discovered that the FBI was holding workshops on intersectionality theory. The Department of Homeland Security was telling white employees they were committing micro-inequities and had been socialized into oppressor roles. Finally, the Sandia National Laboratories, which designs America's nuclear arsenal, sent white male executives to a three-day re-education camp, telling them that white male culture was analogous to the KKK, white supremacists, and mass killings. This year, I finished another series of reports focused on critical race theory in education. The stories are shocking. In Cupertino, California, an elementary school forced third graders to deconstruct their racial and sexual identities, then rank themselves according to their power and privilege. In Springfield, Missouri, a middle school forced teachers to locate themselves on an oppression matrix, telling straight, white, English-speaking Christian males they were members of the oppressor class and must atone for their covert white supremacy. In Philadelphia, an elementary school forced fifth graders to celebrate black communism and simulate a black power rally to free Angela Davis from prison, where she had once been held on charges of murder. And finally, in Seattle, the school district told white teachers they were guilty of spirit murder against black children and must bankrupt their privilege in acknowledgement of their thieved inheritance. This is a revolutionary change. In the previous century, state institutions were presented as neutral, technocratic, and oriented towards broadly held perceptions of the public good. This is no longer the case. Our institutions are being radicalized by critical race theory, and the levers of state power are being turned against the American people, with no sign of slowing down. Here's the problem. Thus far, Americans of good faith have been unable to resist critical race theories blitzed through our institutions. There are four main reasons for this. First, most Americans have developed an acute fear of speaking about sensitive social and political issues, especially race. According to a recent Gallup poll, 52% of liberals, 64% of moderates, and 77% of conservatives are scared to share their political beliefs in public. They're afraid to get mobbed on social media, fired from their job, or berated by the institutions. So they simply remain quiet which cedes the territory to the most intolerant voices who can dominate the public conversation and install their ideology in the country's schools, government agencies, and corporations. And consequently, these institutions become monocultures, dogmatic, intolerant, suspicious, and hostile to a diversity of beliefs. The equity and inclusion department is established in the name of a social good, but in practice serves as a political office, enforcing the new orthodoxy and punishing any dissent. Second, the critical race theorists have constructed their argument like a mousetrap. They claim that any disagreement with their program is simply evidence of the dissenters' white fragility, unconscious bias, or internalized white supremacy. They project this idea of false consciousness on all of their opponents. They transform principled disagreement into evidence of guilt. I've seen this play out dozens of times in my reporting. Diversity trainers will make an outrageous claim, such as all whites are intrinsically oppressors or white teachers are guilty of spirit murdering black children, and then flat out refuse to consider any evidence to the contrary. If they're confronted, they'll adopt a tone of patronizing concern and explain that participants are feeling white denial and reacting out of guilt and shame. The dissenters are instructed to remain silent, lean into the discomfort, and accept their complicity in white supremacy. Thus, the mousetrap is shut and the program continues without interruption. Third, many liberals, moderates, and conservatives have failed to separate critical race theory's premise from its conclusion. The premise of critical race theory is quite simple. America has a history of slavery, racism, and injustice, and we should examine the relationship between racism, power, and society. This is undoubtedly true. Nobody taking an honest look at American history could deny it, but the critical race theory's that the American regime is irredeemably racist and must be overthrown through moral, political and economic revolution is false. But the critical race theorists use their premise as a bludgeon, bullying people into accepting their conclusions. This is dishonest and manipulative. It's entirely logical and moral to accept the premise that the United States has a history of racial injustice and even that residual racism is still a pernicious force in American society, but reject the critical race theorist political program which, as we've seen, is little more than repackaged 1960s-style Marxism. Finally, the writers and activists who've had the courage to speak out against critical race theory have often fought on purely theoretical terms, pointing out critical race theory's flawed logic, internal contradictions, and bad history. These are all worthy criticisms, but they move the debate into the realm of the academic and the abstract which is friendly terrain for the critical race theorists and absolves them from grappling with the practical and tangible consequences of their philosophy. We shouldn't challenge the critical race theorists to debate the finer points of Marx and Marcuse. We must confront them with the reality that they're creating. Do they support schools separating third graders into oppressor and oppressed? Do they support a curriculum teaching that all white people perpetuate systemic racism? Do they support schools instructing white parents to become white traitors and advocate for white abolition? Do they believe that counter-genocide is a solution to America's problems? These are all real-world examples from my investigative reporting and a better challenge to critical race theory than a thousand academic papers. The real test for the critical race theorists is not to defend their ideas as abstractions, but to defend the real world impact of their ideas. And this brings us to the key point. Critical race theory is no longer a phenomenon of the mind. It's a phenomenon of political power. If we want to successfully oppose this new orthodoxy, we must seek to change the structures that have enabled it into being. We must address politics as politics and confront power as power. So this is the task to defeat the ideology of critical race theory and reassert the American ideals of freedom and equality. There are four ways we can accomplish this. Public policy, civil rights lawsuits, grassroots mobilization, and winning the public debate. First, we can and must fight critical race theory in the domain of public policy. And in fact, we're already doing this. Last year, my reporting led President Trump to issue an executive order banning critical race theory-based training programs from the federal government. President Biden rescinded this order on his first day in office, but it provided a model for red state governors and legislators who want to protect their citizens from race essentialism, collective guilt and neo-segregation. Governor Ron DeSantis has banned critical race theory in Florida's K-12 curriculum and red states have introduced bills to achieve the same goal through legislation. Second, we must fight against critical race theory in the courts. To do this, I've launched a new legal coalition to stop public institutions from conducting programs that stereotype, scapegoat, or demean people on the basis of race. Our argument is that critical race theory is not only intellectually and morally bankrupt, but in practice violates existing law. It violates the First Amendment, which protects citizens from compelled speech, the Fourteenth Amendment, which provides equal protection under the law, and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits public institutions from discriminating on the basis of race. Eventually, one of our cases will reach the Supreme Court and we'll win. Third, there's a bipartisan and multiracial coalition that's emerging to fight critical race theory at the grassroots level. Parents have begun fighting against racially divisive curricula in schools, and employees have begun speaking out against Orwellian practices in the workplace. Asian American parents in particular have been successful in pushing back at the local level. They've recognized that critical race theory poses a major threat to their children, categorizing them as oppressors, discriminating against them in college admissions, and punishing their success. In my reporting, many Chinese Americans told me that they survived the cultural revolution in their home country and refused to let it happen here in America. Finally, we must develop a new moral language on these issues and appeal to higher principles than our opponents. We must promote the true story of America, a story that is honest about injustices in our history, but places them in the context of our nation's highest ideals and the progress we've made towards realizing them. We must raise the debate to a higher level. For example, we often find ourselves debating about diversity. Diversity is good, all things being equal, but it's a secondary value. We should really be aiming towards excellence, which provides a common standard and challenges people of all backgrounds to achieve their true potential. When we elevate the debate to this higher conceptual plane, we force our opponents to debate on our territory. And excellence beats diversity every time. The stakes of this fight are incredibly high. It's not an exaggeration to say that a governing regime based on critical race theory would mean the end of freedom and equality in America. According to their own policy prescriptions, the critical race theorists would limit or abolish the right to private property, freedom of speech, equal protection under the law, non-discrimination, free enterprise, and the federalist system of government. In its place, they would create a new regime of group-based rights, race-based redistribution of wealth, omnipotent bureaucratic authority, and active racial discrimination. It's not a program of reform. It's a program of revolution that rejects the founding principles and would overturn the premise of the Constitution. The secret to winning this fight is courage. This is the fundamental virtue required of our time, the courage to speak the truth, the courage to withstand epithets, the courage to face the mob. When enough of us do this, when we break through the wall of fear that prevents so many people from speaking out, the narrative of critical race theory will begin to crumble. It's easy to stop a lone dissenter. It's much more difficult to stop 10, 20, 100, 1,000, a million people who stand up together. Truth and justice are on our side. If we can muster the courage, we will win.
1: As I said, I don't normally play long-form monologues like that or presentations, but that presentation by Christopher Rufo from the Manhattan Institute to me is the most comprehensive presentation of what critical race theory is and why we must fight with everything we have against it if we are to save this country for our kids uh, going to get out and wrap it up right after this on AM 1420 The Answer Okay, 1057, wrapping it up now. Um, let's see if we can get Navy man Norm on the air. Um, Norm, thanks for waiting through the entire 16 and a half minutes of uh, Christopher Rufo. but that is information we cannot do without. Go ahead, Norm.
5: It was worth it, Bob. It was worth it. I just wanted to say my flag to me, the one that I served and will be buried under, is more important than watching the Olympics. I do not intend to watch it, uh, nor do I intend to watch any football game, in the professional league, the NFL is going to come out this year. They're going to not play the national anthem. They're going to play the black national anthem on opening day. And they're going to allow their players to wear George Floyd decals or patches on their helmets and uniforms, along with other wonderful older boys from the Black Lives Matter movement. So this, to me, this is insanity. I don't care. What I will fight this. Uh, desecration of my flag. I will fight this critical race bovine excrement with every breath left in this 80-year-old body. But I do not intend to see my children or my grandchildren serve under this equity Marxist BS, period. And, and I don't care if a call comes to arms. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> I am not going to be silent. I refuse to be silent. And if they want to shame me and call me a racist, call me all the names you want But I have power of the purse. I can control my votes when it comes to school levies. I can shoot them down along with the rest of my neighbors. And I'll tell you, in Strongsville, people are ticked beyond belief, Bob. We're not putting up with
1: this anymore, period. Norm, I know it, my friend, and I'm so glad. Thank you so much for the call that we have people from your generation willing to band together with people in my generation, and I'm banding together with people in the millennial generation and hopefully the brave young kids who haven't already been indoctrinated in the Gen Z generation to fight against this because it will take all of our collective efforts to stop this this attempt at the destruction of our country. It is nothing short of that. If you... know people that need to learn what you just learned about critical race theory through that uh, video slash audio I played for you. Tell them to listen to the podcast at whkradio.com. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Enjoy the silence.